In this session with Dr. Iman Tadros, we discuss incarceration and family systems work, practices of necessary resistance, and an invitation to MFTs. Welcome to the AFTA podcast. I am Naveed Zamani and I am your host. In this session, I'll be speaking with Dr. Iman Tadros. Dr. Iman Tadros is an assistant professor at Syracuse University in the Department of Marriage and Family Therapy. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, MBTI certified, an AMFT approved supervisor, and a family team leader. She is the assistant editor for the journal Child, Care, Health, and Development. Her research focuses on incarcerated couples and families. She has published 114 peer-reviewed journal articles in various magazines, blog posts, book chapters, op-eds, and policy briefs. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Tadros. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And as always, I'd like to ask our guests, what's been capturing your attention in your work these days? What isn't capturing my attention? It's in a few places right now, um, but I would say my main focus is incarceration, the impact of family system. I feel like speaking to an audience of family therapists um, this might capture some of their interests, but my research advances what's known about family dynamics and improving treatment with this particular population. So research on incarceration, in my opinion, should center on the impacts of family systems to strengthen relationships and overall dynamics. So what's interesting is in the research on um, incarceration in general, there's a lot on parents of incarcerated children and psychology, sociology, um, counseling, all the mental health fields that we all talk about how there's a lot of impact on children, right? Like academic outcomes, um, delinquency, all of these other Im impacts that are pretty negative. But we don't really talk about the other way around, like the impact on the parent or the impact of other family, um, family members, such as siblings and co-parents. And so this gap showcases with little information is known about these individuals impacted by incarceration, such as romantic partners, siblings, and co-parents. So Iman, what I'm hearing you say is that there's something about all the, this is like a plethora of work around maybe the psychologizing the effects and internalizing the effects of incarceration on various people and families. But there's maybe something, correct me if I'm misrepresenting this, that there's something about you're working at like the looking at the relationship or the dynamics that incarceration um, the effects that incarceration has on the dynamics of a family system. Correct. So, in our society, we kind of preference certain people, and like we kind of have empathy for children because they're the innocent ones, and they have this, you know, horrible parent that was incarcerated and created all of these negative consequences, such as this child cannot participate in certain activities or their lower socioeconomic status and all of these other things, right? But we don't really care about the 30-year-old that has her, you know, 32-year-old brother incarcerated. We don't think about the impacts there. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really intrigued by this selfishly because I am currently working with somebody whose um, their son is coming out of um, incarceration and they're going to re 
reconnect and try and kind of figure out some family dynamics. So I'm, I guess I'd wonder like, what would you offer family therapists who are encountering uh, various family members who are incarcerated and that status is shifting and I don't know what, what should I attend to? Yeah. So I think about applying the basic family system series that we've learned about. And so for example, structural has a really good dynamic of, you know, the hierarchy. And most of us understand this, um, the principle of restructuring the family system. So I think about if a parent is incarcerated, then the co-parenting partner has to renegotiate rules, roles, and boundaries within that couple subsystem and the parental dyads, right? And you have to kind of figure out what's happening here. And then also how it's impacting the other subsystem, which would be the, um, the child subsystem and the interactions with the parents. So I think about restructuring uh, would be one part of it. And then also looking at incarceration as a form of trauma, we think about like the traumatic experience of being arrested as part of it. We don't really think about the consistent trauma of what's happening in the incarcerated facility. I mean, some like popular TV shows talk about that, um, but they don't really talk about lesser forms of trauma, like watching, um, you know, the, the outside events happening in your children, co-parenting partners, romantic partners, siblings, parents, lives, mm. and being powerless in that and focusing on kind of the dynamic that shifts there. Um, that's kind of lesser talked about, but there's a lot of other things that are not talked about in that realm as well. But in terms of trauma, we think about like the arrest or maybe like the, the typical situation of the child seeing their parent ripped out of their home, but not, you know, the traumatization process of having to figure out being a maybe and I don't know the right words for this academically but being kind of both parents in the home because mm. one parent is now incarcerated and you are taking on this new role of being two parents in one there's yeah. a lot of literature that talks about um usually for if you have a heterosexual couple and the male partner is incarcerated, that the female partner has to take on um, what's called a, like a dual role in the relationship of maybe providing commissary money to their account and all these other things. But if they have children together, it's more likely that the mother um, that is not incarcerated will take care of those children versus if it's the female incarcerated and the male partner parent um, not incarcerated, that those children will go to like a grandparent or foster care system or another type of um, family setting. They will not be raised necessarily by the father by himself, which is very interesting in thinking of like gender dynamics too and the roles that that would play. Yeah. Well, you're describing a very complex and highly dynamic system and process. And like, you know, from the external forces um, and the uh, effects of trauma, I suppose, of not just the process of becoming incarcerated, but being in the incarceration systems, the experience of perhaps, I don't know if this is the way, if this is a fair description, like kind of like watching life outside pass by as you're kind of left with limited influence and power in those relationships. Um, and then all the effects on the family structure that being incarcerated and then kind of coming back in has as people are like negotiating and perhaps renegotiating various roles and 
uh, rules, I think you said. Mm-hmm. I, you know, this is a fairly simplistic question because I think it requires context, which I'm interested in if if it makes sense to develop. But like, where do you tend to start or how do you know kind of like, how are you getting in there, I suppose, in such a highly complex process? So when I've supervised in this setting, so, well, first I should start with, I provided marriage and family therapy services um, years ago at incarcerated facilities. Um, So I would be able to provide individual, um, you know, people are incarcerated and need the services. And that was not difficult. Within this prison. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What's difficult is inviting family members and trying to get them to buy into that Mm. process, especially when they have to travel to facilities and, um, there's usually the identified patient situation of like, well, they're incarcerated. They did this. Like, why am I kind of facing the consequence of having to even pay for a bus to get there? And those like, right. Um, I was thinking of that as like dual complexities. Like it's already hard enough to get people to buy into therapy, but then that's a whole different dynamic. Right. But then I would say like within supervising, usually students want like an intervention. Like, well, how do I help this already complex system? It's already hard enough to do therapy, but now we're adding in like logistical um, issues there. Like, how do I prove to not only the family that I'm going to be helpful, but the system of why they should even have me to begin with. And then me as a supervisor, trying to advocate to the therapist of what they should do. And they're saying basically like, what intervention, what can I do? I need to like do something, right. Especially as like a new master's level therapist, they want to provide some kind of like fix it solution situation. Right. Um, especially in this kind of setting where you feel like there's so many fires to put out at the same time. So think about something like narrative therapy, like reauthoring their story would be really powerful, but how do you even do that when their story is so complex? And then like, what are the power dynamics at play here? Because they are obviously compounded versus a family that you're just seeing in the community in a clinical mental health setting. Well, and in some ways uh, what I'm hearing you say, um, Iman, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that like the prison system itself is an individualizing force. Like I'm thinking that how far, at least I'm in California, so they tend to be, the prisons out here are built pretty far away from everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite a endeavor to get out there. Um, and so to get families to even go out there and then go out there to do therapy, which is already a challenging ask, kind of creates this compounded effect where like yeah you're just kind of working with individuals even if you're wanting to do family work and then from there too like how do you then start to like understand some of the stories of power especially because i imagine too you're kind of as a therapist we're participating in those systems as the therapist in the prison we're part of that same system that's oh you bring up so many good uh, like three stories just popped into my mind but yes yeah, I'm curious where, where your head went as I started describing that. Oh, yeah, I did not want to interrupt you, but I had 17 million things that I could speak Please. to about this. How do I narrow? Um, so one is you are seen as part of the system, which for me, I'm like, no, I'm fighting the system. I am with you. Like, I am your ally. So like, um, I think of like when somebody says their team, whoever, like, you know, when you think of like movies, and I, I don't know, I thought of Twilight. I'm not even a Twilight person, but like, <laughs> it's like team Edward or team Jacob. I don't know. I think those are their names. And I'm like, no, I'm team you client person, whoever you are in the system. Like I am not part of this system, but I could be exacerbating some of these things. Like, so I'll give one example. One, one of the facilities I worked at 
you get your normal informed consent, right? As, um, you know, anywhere you do therapy and it's like, here's your basic confidentiality. Now there's this little clause here that says, if you break a facility rule that I'm allowed to tell on you now, I mean, I don't know who's listening and who's going to get me in trouble, but I did not tell on them. Like somebody smoked a cigarette. That is not something that I was telling on them for. Now I did tell them, you know, I understand if you have to hide that information from me because I am supposed to tell. If you want to talk about it, we can, but that's like what's in your informed consent. And so one of them was like, oops, I just told you about the cigarette. And I'm like, I was like, "Um, I didn't hear you. Can you repeat that? And then like, they just moved along the story, right? Like they slipped up and told me that they smoked a cigarette. Now, what do I care? How does that even impact? It was a small detail of their story and they broke a rule, but I'm part of the system who is supposed to tell on them. And the, that intricacy of like, you're on my side, but to an extent is so powerful. Yeah. And I then let's say to... I did tell on them. Like, then what? Are you trusting me ever again? I'm your therapist. Like, what am I doing to you right now? Causing you harm if I tell somebody that. Those are really challenging dynamics because, well, I guess I'm wondering how do you like negotiate being part of the system? I'm thinking about some of your students, right? Because I imagine they probably have some ethical stances against the prison system as a whole. And then they go in with the ethics of being a helper. And then you're in the system trying to resist and fight the system, but the system is writing your informed consent for you. And then you and your client are sitting there negotiating the limits of what you're able to say or not. So it didn't really come up for me um, because a lot of them knew that they weren't going to maybe tell me if they broke a rule, but uh-huh. I was also not in a maximum security type situation. Okay. Like um, they, they were not handcuffed. Like I ran a group where I was enclosed in a room with uh, I think like eight to 10 men and people would always ask me, are you scared? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I they I was never mistreated. Um, and I know this might be naive to say, but like, I didn't feel fear, even though there could be something that maybe could have happened to me. Right. But I was very much respected in that realm. And maybe they did see me as someone of authority, but actually there was times where they thought I was an authority of things that I wasn't like somebody was asking me like a question about their parole. And I'm like, I have no idea. And then somebody asked me if they can skip work to come to therapy. And I'm like, I don't know if you want, like, yeah, like, So I think something else that's powerful is that you would think that therapeutic dynamics weren't very highly valued because if they're breaking, right, right. The whole, like you're you're a rule breaker and you're part of the system. And like, you have a lack of respect for authority. I was very well respected and I don't know if I was seen as authority sometimes. Yes. Sometimes no, but I always tell this one story. Um, I don't know why it always comes up, but maybe because it's so powerful to me. Um, I would schedule my own sessions. I had a lot of freedom. Um, in terms of like what I did. And so I would schedule sessions kind of around my schedule. And then sometimes like with the family, but if it was an individual session, it was between me and the client. And I would say like, Hey, I'm here at this time. Like, can you do this? And it was kind of like how you'd casually set up a session in the community. Um, even though I could say no, just like I could in the community, same thing. So he had a session with me and we agreed on a time. So he left the session. Um, and then that was it, right? Like session's over. He left. I left. I just, it happened to me my last session of the day and I was leaving. I crossed paths with him leaving and um, he was like, oh, hey, have a good day. Whatever. I was like, oh, where are you off to? Like, I just like casually was just like, where are you going? Cause like, why did I just run into him again in the hallway? It didn't really make sense. And he was like, oh, they told me I can't eat lunch. 
And so me, I'm like, why? He said, I missed lunch because like session. And I was like, why did you miss? Like, I didn't know when his lunch was. I don't keep track of their schedules at all. We scheduled it based on us. He said, that's when you had available because I had one slot left my last session. And he said, that's when you had available and they're telling me I can't eat. Now, I don't know where I had the authority in my mind as 23 year old me, I think was like, I'm going to go get this man lunch. Now I had no jurisdiction. I never even been into the kitchen. I didn't even know where it was. I was like, where are we going? Angry 23 year old me was like, we're going to get some food. So on the way, I'm like asking him questions. Like why they tell, you no? he said, they told me I missed it. They said, you missed lunch. That was like the excuse that they said to give him no food. Angry me and goes in there and I'm like, Hey, what's going on? And there's like no one in the lunchroom anymore. I never even been in there. And I'm like, hi, I'm whoever, like, I just said who I was. I'm like, I'm a therapist here. Um, I was just wondering, like, can he get some food? Like, I was very casual about it, very angry. And they're like, oh, he missed lunch. And like gave that same kind of excuse. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll just wait here until you give him like the makeup meal or whatever it was. Because on the way there, he told me that like, sometimes they leave food on the side for people who missed it for work and for like, whatever they deemed like appropriate reasons. So I was just like, okay, I'll just wait until you get it for him. And they were watching me and I was just standing there looking very not important, (laughs) just standing, waiting on the side. And then they gave him a stack of bread, like Wonder Bread, white bread, like untoasted, didn't look appetizing. And then like this, like maybe two spoonfuls of beans. Because of course I look over, I'm like, let's make sure he got the food. And then he offered me some. Mm. And I was just like, no, thank you. Like, I got to go actually. Like, and I just like kind of scurried out of there because it's like, I got the job done. Like, I'm not trying to intervene in any of these dynamics. Like, I'm not trying to show favoritism. I'm just saying like, this is not going to be okay on my watch. But how many times would this have happened? And the point is he chose lunch as a secondary option for him. He chose going to therapy as the first option. He knew that he ran the risk of not getting any food. Mm. So he obviously valued therapy. And so people that say, you know, is this really helpful to them? He obviously thought our sessions were helpful enough that he was risking not eating till dinner. Yeah. And his makeup meal, which we talked about like later, I was like, oh, so like what happened? Like, was everything okay when I left? Did anything happen? And he was like, yeah, it was fine. I was like, oh, like what's usually for lunch? Like we just kind of made like casual conversation. He's like, not that. Like we made the joke about how like clearly they were punishing him, right? For missing lunch. And because I came in and was like, give him food. And so I think about those types of things that I'm in the system. I'm very well versed in what's happening. I work there and like I do this research and I still didn't think like this man was going to be punished for going to therapy with me. And like, you learn something new all the time within those systems. He did not complain. We didn't really have a long conversation about it. And he wasn't even going to tell me we crossed paths because he was my last session. And I was like, Hey, I'm leaving. Where are you going? Right. So. And I imagine that there was some positive effects from that, him witnessing you standing up for him and kind of doing your form of fighting the system on the session. Never talked about it. So I have no idea, but I don't, nobody was really there. Nobody really saw it. I had a supervisor that was never on site with me. It was like a group supervision offsite kind of thing. And we didn't really talk about it too much, mm. but also like, what were they going to do? Fire me. I'm an unpaid intern. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that would have done harm to the clients. Absolutely. Because we're not terminating if they're just firing me, but also I made sure to play the societal dumb girl card for sure. I was like, I'm just going to wait here until you get it. Because yeah, yeah. if they said, no, we can't, 
I probably would have fought harder, but I would have definitely tried to protect him in a sense of like, he didn't tell me, I'd be like, oh, I didn't know. Like, I just thought I have to wait for him. Like, I had a whole thought in my mind, but they just like awkwardly kept looking over at me to see if I was still there. And you can't bring your phones in. So I'm just kind of like staring at the ceiling kind of thing, just waiting around. And this was maybe 10 minutes of part of my day, but I would hope there'd be some effects of like, there are people fighting for you. I don't think most people thought I was part of the system, um, but I did feel the, and I talk about this in some of my articles, the general lack of trust for us, because we are a part, we're, we're working there. Right. Like, um, I remember one client was like, I know they don't pay you enough. Like, thanks so much. And I'm thinking in my head, I have not made a penny here, but like, you're worried about what I'm getting paid right now. Like you're feeling empathy for me. This is a whole different dynamic. Right. Well, I think you've done a really nice job in this story, illustrating like the incredible force sometimes it requires to be fighting a system or in some stance of activism for your clients um, to try and like show up relationally and ethically for your clients in ways that's helpful. Um, and also the, really rigid and kind of calcified institutional processes and relational limits that are placed on your work. I wonder if kind of like having set that scene, if you could kind of describe how the family work then looks, I mean, you kind of spoke to it, like it's already really hard as it is to do family work. And then the prison systems individualizing processes as it is. I wonder if you can give a story or an example of how does the family work look or happen in that system. So um, one being, and I always talk about this over and over, and I'm very biased to it. We have money for correction officers, not for therapists. Hmm. To me, that's mind boggling because um, I've given talks at certain facilities. I remember this one, they loved everything I had to say. They were so on board and on brand with everything I was saying. They were here for it. I did a talk. This was a juvenile justice facility in Ohio. I never worked there. I was basically like, hey, I have ideas for you. Do you want to improve your system? I was just trying to make connections. This is and the they here is the correctional officers. Is that right? Or the admin? Yeah. Admin. Sorry. I should say that. I don't actually know what their roles were like some kind of admin job there. Um, I never actually met any of the incarcerated uh, juveniles there at all. Okay. Um, I was like, let me train your staff. I got some ideas. They, I just sent them some of my work. They were all about me. Loved it. Come on in. I come in. I give this what I deem pretty I don't know, like basic talk about like showing empathy and like listening to um, the juveniles experiences, um, like not calling them inmate. Like, I don't know, very basic, like um, ideas too, because I did some like program type stuff for facilities that worked in New Jersey. Like um, I ran like a family night, which like you provide them a psychoeducation lecture, but I was saying what you're lecturing to the community is very different from what I'm lecturing to like, you know, um, a classroom. So mm-hmm. I'm like, a lecture. I'm I'm telling them if you're going to lecture someone 10 to 15 minutes and you're giving them the topic ahead of time and you are rewarding them, right? So like they would be allowed to have the visit for the rest of the time. And so people would say like, well, what are they just coming for the visit? I'm like, that doesn't matter. Like it's about family, right? So let's say they're not coming for the lecture. They still might get something out of that 10, 15 minutes that I'm speaking. Yeah. And I was surprised. So I was thinking at first too, like I would come, like if it was my brother was incarcerated and they said you have to listen for 15 minutes and you get extra time with him, I am going to be the star student and I'm going to look them dead in the face and nod and smile and get what I need to get because this is for my brother, right? Right. But there's a lot of the times they were asking further questions. They were carrying the conversation. They were asking me to clarify things. 
people were definitely there to, for the visit, but they were getting something out of it. Some people after would say like, I wish you were able to talk more about this. And I'm like, okay, we can next week, like whatever. <laughs> so you'd be surprised. So there's things like that, that I was telling them, like, you could do a family night. And like, if you're going to have an intern do a lecture, maybe do five minutes on a specific topic or whatever. I was giving ideas. They loved it. At the end of that, they asked me if I can come back and do another one, if I could do this, if I could do that. And I'm like, I'm here for it. Um, you have to pay me. They were like, oh no, how dare you, Esther Money? And I'm like, you're getting paid admin secretary. You're getting paid correction officer. You're getting paid. But me, PhD candidate with all these ideas that you love, can't have a small stipend that was going to literally just be for me to feed myself that day and get to the facility and back. Because what I was asking for was like less than minimum wage. And they said, no. And I was like, great, take all my ideas and apply them. I don't care. I literally told them, here's a copy of my PowerPoint. Learn something from it. Go ahead. I was angry because I'm thinking like, you loved everything I had to say until there was a small stipend for me to feed myself to be able to do this. Yeah. So how am I going to get a team of interns to help me with this if you're not even giving us money for lunch that day? Right. But they have the money to do everything else they want. And they had the money in the budget. They were unwilling to spend it on that. So it's more about like the advocacy efforts that need to happen so that people that can do this work. And then I also think about... You said like, you know, how does one even get to do the family work? Well, we need to get in there to be able to do it. You need to recognize that we're doing something important. So me giving that talk, I had no problem doing the maybe three hours of prep time to set it up. And then maybe the hour that I spent there and there back and forth. Maybe this was like six hours of my life, right? But this is the prep work to get us into those facilities. But now you want me to come in weekly and do stuff for you for free? Like it just doesn't even add up. Mm. Like it just doesn't happen. So I think about like other things that come into play logistically to even get us to do that family work. So I'm bilingual. I speak Spanish and I was an intern, not getting paid, providing family services um, in Newark, New Jersey. Now, how are these people going to know the services exist if they don't speak English? So somebody was saying like, Oh, um, they didn't know what, like where to go and what to do. I'm like, right. They don't speak English. Like I don't understand how you expected them to know that. So they said, okay, well, they can't come because there's no one to explain things to them. The, like the people checking them in for like visitation don't have time to do all that. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a whole another topic for another day. So um, what I did, and obviously you could probably tell by this conversation, I don't always follow the rules. So maybe I'm not a good candidate for working in these type of facilities because there's lots of rules. But this wasn't necessarily breaking a rule. It just wasn't something that was done. I called them and provided an invitation. And so, of course, like I'm asking supervisors, like if, if this is a horrible idea, tell me I'm open to feedback. But I called someone. And I was like, hey, just letting you know, you can come. Here are the rules. Don't bring anything. Like I give them like a simple synopsis of whatever the rules were. And I was like, and just letting you know, maybe you can't come. But like anyone in your family is welcome to come to X, Y, and Z. Here are the services we provide. Three-minute phone call, provided in Spanish. Done. So, um. I don't know if this is the right way to go about it, but personal invitation. Mm. And so they needed to be invited to the conversation. They needed to know that they were welcome in these settings and that these services exist. And that's something that also comes about a lot in the research I do. Resources are not shared and people don't have knowledge. And that's something that as an academic, I'm like, that's what you need. Oh, if knowledge is what you need and you need to just be sent information and you need to have that digestible and science communication, 
I am great at that. I'm your girl. However, you have the systems in place that don't want you to have that knowledge and that's there for a reason. Hmm. I appreciate what you're saying, Iman, because, you know, there's this ethic that um, I draw on f- uh, from the narrative therapy world around kind of decentering yourself. And that ethic kind of uh, theoretically at least speaks to how you can do that in terms of epistemology and just like the linguistic features. But there's a way that in your story that you're decentering yourself kind of structurally, like you're saying, like, okay, I have all this time for family therapy or this psychoeducational thing. What I'm going to do is make my part really short and kind of center their family time and kind of keeping the family ethic alive. I, I don't know. I just really appreciate that. And in that process too, you're identifying linguistic justice issues and kind of ways that like various communities have access to what you're saying or not. I have to say, it sounds like a, you know, a pretty intense world to be in, to try and do the good work that you're doing. What kind of gives you the energy to do this work or what's, yeah. How do you create the inertia to do this work? So, you know, like 12 year old me love like law and order. Right. (laughs) So like, I've always been really interested in like injustice in general and what's more unfair and lacking justice than the criminal justice system. Um, So I think that, um, I think there's such a need. And then I think about like, I'm also an academic, right? And I'm making my life harder. So I've been told before, because you know, this population, you need extra approvals to do like institutional review board. You have to do um, a bunch of what they deem extra work to be able to access this population. Like I even think about how like my research, like I would have a lot more publications, for example, if we're thinking about this from like a me perspective. And so I've been told before, like, you'd be able to get a lot more done if you weren't like taking like extra steps backwards. So like I, instead of just submitting like, um, you know, an IRB application that was probably going to get approved instead of having all these revisions, I'm wasting my time. Right. And so the way it's been like said to me by a few supervisors of like, you're making your life harder for tenure. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, that is so insane. Like to even think about, like, this isn't really about me. Like, yeah, it's my career. And actually like, I'm not worried about it at all because if your work is good, people will notice that at some point, maybe in the beginning, they're going to think like you're not, you're behind or not on par. Like if you're supposed to have certain things, but like the recognition will come if you do good work in like my mind. Um, And maybe that's not true, but I just thought of it like people are going to notice if you have good ideas. Um, And so it really isn't about if it's going to be easier because a lot of things that are meaningful aren't easy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of my questions for you, uh, as you were describing, was like, if you would recommend this work for incoming therapists and almost sounds like a criteria to do it is that they're watching some law and order. <laughs> yeah, um, that might be part of it. Um, <laughs> any kind of law shows, there's so many like good ones. I yeah, can't even yeah. think off the top of my head but yeah that's that's definitely part of it yeah like um so I always talk about the the book the new Jim Crow I actually saw her speak she came to my university um so I work at Syracuse and Michelle Alexander came to speak and of course I'm front row like I read your book and you are amazing right um but like for those that don't love reading I'm like okay well she speaks on Netflix on like the show I think it's a documentary called 13th um and so if reading about it isn't your thing, like there's lots of, you know, podcasts that talk about this kind of stuff, as well as, um, you know, Netflix documentaries. 
and articles um, that you can have um, kind of broken down in like YouTube videos and stuff like that. So there's a lot of ways to like learn about the system, but I would not recommend this work to someone who wants something that's easy because it's not going to be easy. And then I think about, let's say you don't want to work in these facilities. If you were a therapist in the community, it would be wild to think that you're not going to encounter someone that's dealing with some post-release issues right. or someone that maybe dealt with this prior, but they're receiving therapy services that are maybe the presenting problem unrelated to the incarceration, but there might be like after effects and spillover um, as well as, I don't know, some injustices that come into play that maybe they weren't necessarily incarcerated, but they have um, other maybe indirect relation to the law um, that's impacting other things in their family system that maybe you have to connect the dots for them. And so I would say that a lot of therapists maybe don't know how to navigate this system. And I mean, I feel like people think I'm an expert and I'm, like I said, a 23 year old me was like, why is he getting served a sack of bread? Even though I was very well versed with the injustices that were coming into play. But I'm thinking, what is my role in this injustice? Like, am I taking away food from this man by telling him therapy is important? Like it was his decision and his autonomy to do this. But like, what is my role in this system? Because I'm here too. And I'm someone deemed of power, which is crazy for a 23-year-old woman of color without a master's degree at the time. So we have to think about our power dynamics in the system, too. Mm. So I want to ask this question, but if you want to brush it off, please feel free to, because I don't know if it's, <laughs> I don't know if it's a fair question for a podcast. I also don't know if it's answerable. But mm. I wonder, as you're imagining 23-year-old you and you now, like what do you know now about the system that you may have, I don't know, that you, if you had an opportunity to talk to the 23 year old, you'd be like, these are some things to kind of keep an eye out for or kind of wonder about or get excited for or otherwise. Yeah. So one thing I had a supervisor say, cause so my first client I've ever seen ever, like I was kind of thrown in like ever, not just in an incarcerated facility, 23 year old me, I had one client and it was my fault completely that I did not do a good job because I was never trained properly on the, like I talked a little bit about the informed consent. She misunderstood the informed consent and I did not do a great job explaining it because my first time doing an informed consent ever with a real client, as well as the specific informed consent for this facility. She thought it said that she has to disclose a health concern to me. Like it was saying, you do not have to disclose a uh -huh. health concern. Because like, obviously there's, um, actually I shouldn't say obviously in an incarcerated facility, you have rules of like, your. I don't even know if this is the way to put it, but this is how I see it. Your rights are stripped. So if someone says you have to tell them something, you might have to tell them something. Right. Like disclosure is not something that you have and confidentiality is not something you have like at your disposal. And so she thought in the informed consent, it was saying, you have to tell me if you have a physical health concern. That is not what it said. She, English was her second language. I spoke Spanish as well, but she spoke perfect English. So I didn't know if it was a language thing or if it was the wording. I didn't know anything. And so she thought it said, and she just started crying. And she told me, I have, you know, wh whatever physical health concern. And I'm like, wait, you don't have to tell me. She thought she had to tell me. And I was like, I want us to build a relationship where you can tell me if you want. But I stopped her. And I was like, no. You do not have to tell me. So one thing 
to answer your question, I would say logistically, I would have probably asked a lot more questions and been a lot more forceful of like my anxieties about this. Like, no, what should I do? Instead of like, they're like, you'll be fine. You're doing great. And I'm like, no, like, this is something I have no idea what the rules are versus like my, you know, my peers are getting trained on how to do therapy in the community. I need extra training. And they definitely would have told me no, right. They would have said that doesn't even exist. Like even now I'm thinking, a long time later, I still don't think these kinds of training exist. And if they are, I'm providing them, which is even scarier because I feel like there's a lot I don't know. But I think about like, I should have probably said like, I'm advocating for this population. I feel like I did a very good job of advocating for them. And I gave you a story of how, but I wasn't advocating for me to be able to advocate for them. Like I was always told like, um, you, you don't like, like you're given this opportunity to be grateful for it. Don't be like, you're not giving me enough. You're not giving me enough supervision, which they weren't. And you're not telling me what to do because they were not. Um, and so I would have probably asked for better training for myself, which would have been better for them. And it would have probably saved that horrible 30 seconds where she's crying. And I'm like, oh my God, I just said my name. Like, I know therapy, there's crying, but like, what do I do? She's crying at their paperwork. We're not even yeah. there yet. Like, what's going on? I have no idea. And in reality, we talked about it. She misunderstood. She said she thought she had to tell me. I was like, nope, you don't have to tell me. And then she, on her own time, did actually explain her physical health concern and how those impacting her mental health. And we did like a lot of work around that. But I did not feel that she has to give me that information. And so we talked about in the system, you know, you have a nurse and they ask you what's wrong and you have to tell them. And she had to disclose this physical health concern. But it was, did you have to or did the system make you think you had to? Yeah. So about power and 23 year old me knew a lot of the powers at play that affected me, myself and my role in society, not exactly theirs to that degree. Yeah. Oh, I really appreciate that, Iman. I think there's a couple like really important charges or reminders for those of us like you and I and those listening in supervisory roles or instructor roles around kind of the uh, the ways that we're in account need to be in accountability around the level of training and supervision and support we provide to um, students and those in really high intensity environments. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm just really appreciating the ways that you've, throughout all of your stories, you're kind of negotiating, trying to figure out power. And it feels related to some of the ways that in our work, um, in the work that I do, we have a lot of uh, mandated clients. And some of the ways that like, when met with frustrations with the clinical work, the voice of the legal system or the criminal injustice system starts to come out of the mouth of the therapist as a effort to do what they think is right. Like, oh, if you don't do this, the judge is going to be mad at you. And like, mm -hmm. really, like, we don't know that. And that's not our scope of practice at all. But like, yeah, just how easy it is for power to slip into our own mouths and start to like shape our clients. And I'm appreciating how like even just some training or attention to like, the critical importance of the informed consent. Because I think sometimes in the clinical training, it's like, okay, so you do your informed consent and then we go to the next thing. Yeah, next, check off the box. Now we do real therapy. But that's a part of the therapeutic process of like, you have the power to not tell me this. And so we always talk about like, I don't know, I shouldn't say we always talk about. When we're talking about positions of power, you can usually identify who has the power. But in this situation... In a collaborative, let's say we're doing kind of like a narrative solution focused type therapy. And I'm telling an incarcerated person 
me with my power, telling someone else they have the power, they're going to think I'm out of my mind. They're going to say, actually, I have zero power in here. And you are just another person in power. All right. Oh, those are really big dynamics. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Iman, I'm really grateful that you're out there doing the work, especially in a system that doesn't seem particularly interested or invitational to it. And yet you're out there doing it, kind of following some of your heart and ethics and well, what you're identifying is important problems to address and bringing the family therapy ethic into it too. So I'm really grateful for kind of your time and sharing some of that work. Um, as you were wrapping up here, I wonder if you have any resources or writings or publications that you might point listeners to if they're interested in learning a little bit more about some of this work. Yeah. So I talked about um, the new Jim Crow, which talks about like the racial caste system and like the, there's a lot of works to talk about like the school to prison pipeline as well. But for a marriage and family therapist, um, the listeners are probably going to be the ones that end up writing some of this stuff because it really doesn't exist. Mm. Um, so I have a personal friend of mine who does this work. Um, her name's Amy Morgan. Um, she's at the University of Maryland and she does um, some of like the family systems work with incarcerated settings. Um, I have a ton of work on this and unfortunately there's not many others doing this work in the marriage and family realm. I know some like great um, HDFS psych um, individuals doing this work, like Joyce Arditi, um, Julie Pullman-Tynan. Um, they are so powerful, Kristen Turney, and in doing this family incarceration type work. And so these people are sociologists, family science, um, psychology um, scholars. But family therapy world, it's not many of us. And um, yeah. I'm not only inviting people to reach out to do this work with me, but also to just, uh, I don't, I don't know, like be involved in the conversation as an MFT, like your insight is super powerful here. And none of us are like, our profession isn't really speaking to this issue. Our profession speaks to a lot of issues and we have seats at the table for lots of different issues, um, sexual abuse, um, immigration, I'm thinking of like a, a plethora of topics, um, infidelity, like all of these issues that come into play in our society that we have seats at the table at. And this just doesn't happen to be one. Yeah, it's making me think too that like you're turning your head and kind of inviting us MFTs to turn our heads towards a part of society that's actively hidden. And kind of, Reason. yeah, it's it's kind of a it supports the powers that be to not look over there and so i'm appreciating this charge like let's look over there mm-hmm. yeah well thank you so much for your time with us today really appreciate thank you it. so much thank you for having me it's been a great discussion my pleasure thanks mm-hmm.